Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was the type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. 
we read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten, even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. We've heard some previous stories about the legendary Eastern Captain Dick Merrill. Captain Merrill seemed to be a very unassuming man. He was a consummate airman, generous to everyone. He was an early airmail pilot. But this is a view from the book, The uh, Best of Repartee. It was written by a, a contemporary of Captain Merrill, Captain O.B. Bivens, and he gives a very intimate portrait of Dick Merrill. The story goes like this. Captain Hill on line one. Thanks, Betty. I punched the lighted button on the telephone. Hi, Walt. What can I do for you? How'd you like to ferry an Electra out to Burbank for world mode modification? Why me, I thought, since you and Fred Davis expanded flight test engineering to handle all the ferry work. Check pilots and other management types wouldn't have to handle that stuff. That's how it normally works, but I'm in a bind. I've got a couple of guys out sick and a couple more on vacation. I thought maybe you'd like to get out of the office for a few days. Walt was right about that. As manager of the propeller division of the flight training department, I looked forward to any opportunity that would allow me to fly a trip. All the Czech pilots were permitted to fly the line for a month at four-month intervals, but department heads did not have that luxury. They were privileged, however, to fly individual trips on a displacement basis whenever they felt they could leave their desk for a day or two. The displaced captain stayed home and was paid for the flight. Needless to say, he was usually happy with the arrangement. The management captain benefited too, as he could choose his trips without considering seniority. Walt, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you can arrange for me to take my wife along, I'll do it. Man, you sure drive a hard bargain, but I'll try. You ought to be able to swing it. Every time I've flown one of those safaris to California, I've had a full load of maintenance people with their kids going to Disneyland. Lucy Matthews seems to give priority to the mechanics when she makes up the passenger list. Hill knew I had him over the proverbial barrel. Okay, I'll work it out. The airplane is number 519, and it will be ready next Wednesday afternoon. Lockheed is supposed to have number 517 ready to return to Miami around May the 1st, so you may have to wait a couple of days, but I'm sure you and Lucille can find something to do in Los Angeles during your layover there. Bon voyage and thanks, pal. 
As it turned out, Walter Hill was really caught short-handed. He had no one available from flight test. Al Beverly, manager of flight engineers, and Dick Merrill comprised the remainder of the crew. Next to Charles Lindbergh, Henry T. Merrill, known worldwide as Dick, was probably one of the most famous aviators in history, at least in the aviation industry. In 1936, he became the first pilot to make a round-trip flight across the North Atlantic to Europe, and then in 1937, he flew the first commercial flight to Europe and returned with pictures of the coronation of King George VI of England. The tremendous publicity resulting from this spectacular flight brought Merrill and his co-pilot, Jack Lambie, a contract to make a movie in Hollywood. Atlantic Flight, starring Dick Merrill and Jack Lambie, was not exactly a sensation on the silver screen, but to me, a teenager barnstorming around Missouri with my father in his OX-5-powered Waco biplane in 1937, it was an airplane movie, and I wouldn't have missed it. I saw them all, the good, the bad, and otherwise mostly bad, but I loved the airplanes. Little did I dream that one day I would work with and be privileged to call Dick Merrill and Jack Lambie my friends. My first flight with Dick Merrill occurred in 1943 when I flew as his co-pilot on the Miami to New York run. He was extremely considerate and helpful, modest and congenial, not at all as I would have envisioned such a celebrated person. Everywhere we went in New York City, he was greeted and welcomed. It seemed he knew everyone, and everyone knew him. He steadfastly refused to allow me to pay my share of the taxi fare or the dinner check. He would say, I've never allowed a co-pilot to buy his dinner yet, O.B. You're not going to, to make me break that rule now, are you? Many years later, after I became a check captain, before Walter Hill's department took over the task of ferrying what were considered to be unairworthy airplanes, Dick and I occasionally teamed up to bring Constellations, DC-7s, and Electras back to Miami with one engine inoperative or some other serious mechanical problem which could not be repaired at outlying stations. The procedure was always the same. To determine who would be the captain, Dick would flip the half dollar he almost certainly rolled around his fingers of one hand. Call it, he would say. If he lost, he would pick up the clipboard with all the flight papers and perform the co-pilot duties, including handling the clearances from air traffic control and taking care of all the routine radio contacts en route. Some of the check pilots were not so considerate. If they happened to be the senior man, they automatically took the left seat and relegated the co-pilot duties to the junior man. Dick was senior to all the pilots except Gene Brown, but never took advantage of his seniority on ferry flights. I won the toss and assumed the left seat for the trip to Burbank. The weather forecast predicted strong headwinds which would require that we make a stop at Houston for fuel. We arrived shortly after the sea fog had rolled in, but the ceiling was being reported as indefinite, 200 feet with visibility of one half mile, barely adequate for an approach on the instrument landing system. Knowing how Dick enjoyed making approaches under minimum conditions, I suggested he make it. But he insisted, it's yours. You make it. That's how the cookie crumbles. He knew I enjoyed instrument flying, too. The remainder of the flight was routine, and when we delivered 519 to Lockheed at the Burbank Air Terminal, we had flown 9 hours and 14 minutes total for the day. The time would have been much less had the Electra not been speed-limited pending completion of the wing and engine mount modifications. The Lockheed representative advised us that 517, the aircraft for our return trip, 
would not be ready for another four days and that we might as well relax and enjoy our stay in California. With that in mind, we checked into the Hollywood Landmark Hotel, where Dick and I usually stayed on layovers in Los Angeles, and agreed to meet for breakfast in a few hours to plan our sightseeing itinerary. Lucille was delighted at the prospect, and I was looking forward to a few days' respite from the pressures of my office. Following breakfast and a brisk walk, the three of us picked up a rental car and headed for Knott's Berry Farm. Dick was a great aficionado of the Old West and could talk for hours about the adventures of Wyatt Earp, Billy the Kid, and other denizens of Tombstone. The Wild West show at the Berry Farm always fascinated him. Later, he suggested we go to the 20th Century Fox Studios the following day to observe the movie industry in action. He made a telephone call to his friend, Harry Brandt, one of the vice presidents of the studio, who advised that his secretary would meet us at the gate and escort us around the lot. The day was truly a tourist dream. It began with a luncheon in the Star's Commissary and concluded with a complete tour of all the sets, including one where Raymond Massey was filming a scene. We watched Massey at work for about half an hour, during which three takes were made before a satisfactory performance was achieved. Everyone was impressed by his patience and good humor. He was dressed in the uniform of a Navy commander and was required to bend down and crawl under a low branch of a tree. On the first take, the branch caught his hat, which fell from his head. A few minutes later, on the second attempt, one of his epaulets hooked on the tree and fell off. Massey broke into a broad grin. Damn it, I'm coming unglued. We all enjoyed a hearty laugh as the makeup man repaired the great actor's uniform for another take. Number three was perfect, and that ended the shooting for the day. The weekend passed quickly with more sightseeing and enjoyable camaraderie. The phone call to Lockheed on Monday revealed their airplane would be ready for the acceptance flight on Tuesday morning, and if we found out everything in order, we could depart for Miami as soon as refueling was complete. We asked that the test flight be scheduled as early as possible in order that we might leave for home no later than 10 o'clock. We checked into the airport at 8, but 517 was still in the hangar. It was rolled out for us just before 11, and we took off immediately. By 12.30, we were back at the terminal after completing all the many requirements by Walter Hill's flight test department. The airplane was in excellent condition, and as soon as refueling was completed, we loaded our passengers, all Eastern employees, and their families, and Captain Dick Merrill took off for Miami. I had been the captain westbound. Now it was Dick's turn to fly. In accordance with the FAA restrictions, the automatic pilots had been disabled on all electrons until the world mode modifications were completed. When the airplanes returned to Miami, the autopilots were then reconnected. As a result of our late departure from Burbank, it was midnight when we reached the Miami area. The ceiling was 600 feet and visibility reported to be a mile and a half in rain. Dick Merrill had manually flown the airplane all the way from Burbank, nearly seven hours, and in no time was he more than five degrees off the desired heading or more than 100 feet off the altitude. His stamina and precision for a man of nearly 70 years was almost incredible. When he completed a back course ILS approach and touched down in the driving rain for a perfect landed, I envied him. I hoped that I could do as well when I reached his age in about 20 years. That's the end of part one of the story. Stay tuned for part two.
Let's look at a few of the problems that Eastern faced in the mid-1950s uh, from the book Eastern Airlines, A History, 1926 to 1991, by David Lee Russell. Just after midnight at 12.02 a.m. on March the 25th, 1954, a fire and explosion occurred at a five-story building at 50 Prior Street in downtown Atlanta. The fire engulfed the entire structure and affected the adjacent buildings at 46 Prior Street, where Eastern's Atlanta Reservation Center was located. Eastern's traffic and sales facilities were located next door at 44 Prior Street. 30 Eastern employees were evacuated quickly, leaving with all the reservation records, control charts, and more. Once the building was safe, the fire marshal refused to allow the Eastern employees to enter the three buildings. As the employees gathered at the Hertz office nearby, the managers decided to set up a temporary reservation location at the airport in a room behind the ticket counter until a more suitable place was ready in the airport's administrative building. At 1.15 a.m., the temporary room was set up, and 15 minutes later, all Eastern stations were alerted that the Atlanta Terminal Center was up and accepting bookings. Meanwhile, Bill Keating got approval from Southern Bell to use a room in the Hunt Building owned by AT&T. At 6.45 a.m., there were 12 phone lines set up in the Hunt Building, plus three receiving and two transmitting teletypes. Less than eight hours after the fire, at 7.30 a.m., Eastern was up and running. In moments of crisis, Eastern employees and management pulled together to overcome the difficulties and get the job done. At the end of 1954, Eastern had grown with a fleet of 120 aircraft, consisting of 60 Martin 404s, 18 L749s, 13 L1049As, 16 L1049Cs, 12 DC-7Bs, and 1 DC-4. On our order were an incredible 108 aircraft, including 10 L1049Gs, 28 DC-7Bs, 40 Electras, 18 DC-8s, and 12 Convair 440s. Eastern had carried 5,783,980 passengers, 11,192 tons of freight, 10,566 tons of express, and 14,280 tons of mail. Total 1954 revenue was $170,519,997 and a profit of $7,177,000. $555. There were now 10,794 Eastern employees on the payroll. As the 1950s continued, Eastern saw more erosion of its route dominance. Battle over routes was fierce. In 1951, Northwest asked permission to fly to Boston to Miami route via New York, driving Eastern to put Governor Fuller Warren of Florida in the CAB hearing to plead the case for the potential loss of hundreds of Eastern jobs if a third carrier was added. The day Warren testified, Eastern employees sat in the courtroom to enhance the visual impact. Bill Van Dusen stated that those employees had come to Washington at their own expense as National's lawyers denounced the display. The Civil Aeronautics Board recommended that the award go to Northwest, which was the verdict in August of 1956. In 1952, Delta was able to acquire the Chicago and Southern system, which gave them north-south links from Chicago, 
St. Louis, Memphis, and New Orleans, and other links to Houston, St. Louis, and Detroit. They also acquired CNS routes to the Caribbean, which made Delta an international carrier. In 1955, Delta won a major victory when the CAB awarded it the Atlanta to New York route via Charlotte, Washington, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. Delta was nearing the size of Eastern, American, TWA, and United. Lawrence Rockefeller became deeply concerned over Eastern's near-legacy problem in getting routes to the West Coast. He blamed Rickenbacker for this failure, which resulted in a serious lack of support on the CAB for many years. Rockefeller also placed some blame on the Atlanta attorney who had handled Eastern's route cases, Smith Gambrell. He felt Gambrell was in lockstep with Rickenbacker's attitude toward the CAB, but he respected the hard work for the airline. Aside from the problems Eastern had because of Rickenbacker's poor relationship with its members, the CAB was intent on increasing competition at the expense of the large carriers. One of the differentiators that the CAB considered was the level of customer service a carrier provided. Here was an area that Eastern suffered in. Customer comfort was not the highest priority with Rickenbacker. He was interested in getting you there efficiently and saving every penny. In the name of efficiency, Eastern flights closed the gates on passengers who were a few minutes late in order to make sure the flight landed on time at its destination. It was good for operational efficiency, but it was not a customer-friendly move. Complaints about Eastern's poor service had grown to the point that two Philadelphia businessmen formed an organization called WHEEL, that's W-H-E-A-L, which stood for We Hate Eastern Airlines. The purpose of this group was to give Eastern bad press. Thousands of passengers joined the organization. A congressman from Kentucky, John N. Robinson, who was a member of the House Judiciary Committee, wrote a letter that declared, I again wish to call your attention to the extremely poor service that is afforded Eastern Airlines passengers in and out of Washington. You may dismiss this letter as being from a sore head if you desire. However, in addition to my own experiences, I come in contact with many persons who are extremely unhappy about the way they have been treated by Eastern. I can assure you that you are developing public ill will, which will be detrimental to your company in the years to come. During the decade of the 50s, Eastern became more impacted by issues with labor unions. Back on March 31, 1949, The CAB mandated a new rule that all passenger aircraft with a maximum takeoff weight exceeding 80,000 pounds must have a third member of the flight crew in the cockpit with a flight engineer certificate. For Eastern, this affected the flight crew sizes on their Constellations DC-6s and DC-7s. The CAB rule could be satisfied by either a flight mechanic or by a trained pilot. Eastern and eight other airlines decided to place a flight engineer in the new role. Aside from the issue of having a crew member with no career path, which while pilots could be promoted with experience to the co-pilot and pilot position, the problem with that decision was that flight engineers and pilots were represented by two different labor unions. Engineers were represented by the AFL-CIO affiliate, the Airline Flight Engineers Association, AFEA, and the Flight Engineers International Association, FEIA, and pilots were members of the Airline Pilots Association, ALPA. The AFEA, with a smaller FEIA and ALPA, engaged in bitter dispute over this jurisdictional issue. 
The dispute even moved the cockpit crews when some Union members drew lines on the floor to mark their jurisdictional boundaries. Delta and other carriers that did not follow the Eastern policy of placing flight engineers in the cockpit were naturally not involved in the dispute. Eastern and its fellow carriers aligned themselves to counter the unions, but the dispute ultimately led to a series of strikes. In 1957, a walkout occurred during the peak winter season, which lasted 39 days, giving Eastern's competition a revenue windfall. Mediators called in by President Eisenhower sided with the unions, and Rickenbacker agreed to put four men in the jet cockpits, with one of the four having a mechanics license, but without having to be a licensed pilot. On November 24, 1958, some 600 Eastern flight mechanics walked off the job in an FEIA strike that would last 33 days. The Alpha Board of Directors voted strike benefits for those pilots feeling they were out because they were protecting Alpha policy on crew complement. The strike should have not lasted that long, but Halliburton noted most of the engineers agreed to take up the training and join Alpha. Rickenbacker ultimately decided to give in to the FEIA, which made the following two strikes a foregone con conclusion. Though frustrated by the work stoppages, during the strikes Rickenbacker showed his carrying side by getting up early and serving hot coffee to the strikers on the picket lines. The collective bargaining agreement between Eastern and FEIA was signed on December the 31st, 1958. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. Captain Eddie's reaction to another late wartime boo-boo was never recorded, and it's possible he never heard about it although what happened became a classic airline story. Eastern had a brand new young woman employee assigned to the ticket counter at Washington National, and came the day when she was allowed to make her first flight departure announcement. She was scared stiff and cleared her throat three times before she began. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, she chirped bravely, if nervously, Eastern announces the departure of Flight 420, Silver Falcon service to New York City. Passengers will please show your tickets to the plane as you board the stewardess. Come with us to a place where the cold ends and the warm begins. Eastern's Winter Wonderland. It starts in Florida and follows the sun to the Bahamas and Puerto Rico. Warm sand, not cold snow. To Jamaica, where fish climb rocks. To Trinidad, where birds change the color of the sky from blue to red. To our other vacation islands of the Caribbean, where beneath the sea there's a rainbow as beautiful as the one above. This winter wonderland than anyone. We fly 
out in more places here than anyone. So you've got to believe we'll find the place and price that's right for you. Come, Eastern's Winter Wonderland is waiting. I found this to be a very interesting story about an Eastern Airlines captain by the name of Helmut Hetz. The story is from the Best of Repartee, and it's entitled The Luftwaffe. Herein lies the story of an event that could only happen in America. It illustrates in the noblest way that ours is a land of forgiveness and opportunity. When this individual first appeared on the scene, he was accepted with mixed emotion, in some cases with reluctance. However, he went on to earn for himself the admiration and compassion of his peers by first taking a menial job as baggage handler, then working up through the ranks of mechanic and eventually to the position of pilot. It is understandable that he would hesitate to have his story included, so we have delayed this issue entitled Eastern and the Military for some years until he felt comfortable to do so. We feel that it is important for it to be told because of his contribution to the Eastern Airlines we love and which means so much to us. In order to retain the mood he has created, we present his narrative just as it was written. Starting in an early, early age, I was interested in airplanes. On my eighth birthday, I received a cake with a chocolate airplane on top and at 13 joined a glider club. At that time, the goal of the club was to build its own glider, an SG-8. The name Schottelspotter, meaning head splitter. It had a beam running down right in front of your head from a trapeze down toward your feet. It had no fuselage and it was an exhilarating experience to sit in it, high above the trees. The clubs were then taken over by the government and we were given a couple more advanced gliders. Unbeknown to the youngsters, it was pre-training for what later became the Luftwaffe. A lot of gliding was done on a hill. Bungee starts and lots of running up and down the hill to retrieve the glider. It was good therapy for the body and a wonderful lesson in working together. The war for Germany started in September 1939. I had to wait until I turned 17 to join up with the Luftwaffe during the usual boot camp and then on to the War Academy with flight training involved in all kinds of airplanes. Henschel 126, Feisler Storch 156, Gotha 145, Bucker 131, 138, 181, Clem 25, 35, Heinkel 72, 51, Falkwell 56, 58, Multi-engine school then followed by instrument school and owned to instrument instruction school. Being young, I pushed hard to get out to an active unit and was very lucky to start out with a newly built long-distance reconnaissance unit. They used a converted airplane, the JU-290. The forerunner was the JU-90, built for the Lufthansa before the war. The airplane was stripped inside. Two large rubber fuel tanks were added to extend the range. The longest flight I had took 18 and a half hours. I would like to add a short story. When I checked out on the airplane, the fellow showing it to me asked about my former training and experience. After I told him about my glider time, he said, any airplane could glide, and he shut all four engines down. We had a hell of a time to stop the great glide and get first one, and then the other engines going again. He decided not to demonstrate this type of maneuver anymore. Our job was to look for convoys, flying from the southwest part of France. We were the eyes of the Navy. What a sight for a young fellow to see. The never-ending conveyor belt of ships coming across the Atlantic. 
every ship low in the water. It began to dawn on us that even if they were only loaded with stones, we eventually would be buried in stones. We lasted for a while after the invasion at Normandy and up the Rhone River, but very soon the sky belonged to the Allies. Our airplane was a beautiful big target full of gasoline, so it could burn like a big torch. Operation came to a quick halt. We left France and ended up near Munich. Our maintenance men went into factories to build airplanes, and we pilots were re reassigned to different jobs. The idea was to be available again for the Navy, when their snorkel submarine would be operable. I became a test pilot for the FW-90, had to put on civilian clothes, and after a while was sent to Messerschmitt to fly the ME-262. It was not too much fun because, as I said before, the sky belonged to the Allied forces and belonging to the factory test group, we were not allowed to have ammunition in the airplane. I was much relieved to get a call from my boss to get back in uniform and therefore action. Now an Aredo, a twin-engine jet, would be used for reconnaissance from Norway to England. Time was February 1945. We blew from Stavanger with extra fuel tanks, took off with JATO assist, had several cameras in the belly, no guns, and flew at an altitude of 31 to 33,000 feet. A flight lasted about 2 hours and 20 minutes. My last flight required an engine shutdown when I got back to Norway. I was out of fuel and crash-landed right next to the airport. Report. Airplane 90% kaput. Pilot still alive. I had one more flight before the end of the war on an airplane requiring a test hop after an engine change. I was the test pilot for the outfit, so with a cast up to my knee, off I went. It was one of the most exhilarating flights I ever had, but that's another story. At the end of the war, I became a prisoner of war and sat in camp till summer of 1946. I then returned home and after some months began studying at the University of Munich. The next exciting chapter in my life began when I met a wonderful American girl, became a war bride, and ended up in Washington, D.C. There I was hired by then Station Master George Dyson as a ramp serviceman. I began to work on my American pilot license and was fortunate enough to get accepted as a pilot with Eastern. The rest is history. At this time, again, I would like to thank all the great people and pilots who put up with me in the beginning stages of my career. What a great feeling it was to be accepted. Names like Tom Bartley, George Cook, Doug Worthern, Trevor Kenyon, John Gill, Furman Stone, and so many others. I couldn't begin to name them all. It was a great feeling to be back in the air again. Every flight was like a gift. Retirement came along. My body might be grounded, but my heart is still flying. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. R.K. Smith was ready to depart San Juan in a DC-4. A well-known actress arrived at the gate accompanied by her pet fox to the admonitions of the agent that live animals were not allowed in the cabin. Her response was, The fox don't go. I don't go. 
Someone scrounged around and found a cardboard box into which the fox was enclosed. As you old DC-4 jockeys remember, the forward baggage compartment abutted the pilot's seats. According to R.K.'s version, they were barely off when a quick glance backward revealed a fox staring at him in the eye. He chewed out of the box. Knowing R.K., we all know this was too good an opportunity for him to miss. Approaching Atlanta, he called and advised, Unable to land, must have box for fox. Several contacts ensued, but no explanation was offered. I'm sure agents concluded that R.K. had finally flipped his lid. Anyhow, some enterprising person found the box, and so advised R.K., and the trip landed. The fox was captured, and presumably everyone went home happy, including the actress and the fox. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. For our last reading tonight, uh, this is a letter that's written by Lester Anderson, and it was posted in the Captain's Log, a historical log, and it's from the files of uh, Shea Oakley collection. I will state without reservation that I was a fan of Eastern Airlines, and I want to share some of those memories. My first 727 flight I graduated high school in 1965, and along with my traveling companions, two other high school students graduating the same from the same high school, we celebrated our graduation by taking a flying trip to Hartford, Connecticut from New York. We had no thoughts of going into the city. We wanted to fly from a New York airport to the Hartford airport and then fly home. We planned this through research using the OAG, Official Airline Guide, as it was called. This was a book that was about the same size as the New York or New Jersey Bell Telephone Directory. For those of you under 40 and have no idea what that means, it was an 8.5 by 11 inch book with soft covers, about 300 pages, printed on newsprint paper. It listed every flight in the United States, listing the airline, type of aircraft, departure, and arrival times, days of travel, and fares. It was published twice a month to keep current. We could never afford a subscription, but I had a travel agency that I befriended uh, and they would give me a copy of the expired last issue. We all had mail subscriptions to the airline timetables, but they were mainly useful to see the flight details. But the OAG, it gave all fares and which airlines were authorized to offer special fares. In the 1960s, all fares were approved by the CAB, that's the Civil Aeronautics Bureau, 
and uh, between city pairs, and unlike today, they changed only when the CAB gave the okay. Classes included first on all aircraft with the letter F, and economy on jets, the letter Y, and tourist on piston engines, the letter T. But important to us were deeply discounted fares, often on weekends, called weekend excursions, which was designated with the letters Y-E fares. So a month after our high school graduation, we flew on an Eastern Airlines excursion fare from JFK to Hartford and returned to New York, Newark for the magical fare of $12. That was $11.43 plus 57 cents tax. See the Eastern Airlines ticket image. <laughs> the validation frank, uh, franking, uh, even though the official name had changed to JFK, was International Airport, New York, New York. As a side note, I was a fan of the James Bond movies and the airline code for all airline issue issued tickets by Eastern was double alt seven. The first flight was on an Eastern DC-7B. Since my first flight ever was on a DC-6B, this was like the big brother of an old friend. I must admit, while I remember taking the flight, I cannot give any outstanding details about either the flight or the aircraft other than remembering the taxi time at JFK was much longer than LaGuardia or Newark. The return flight was a major reason for the trip. It was a new Whisperjet 727. Eastern had begun flying the 727 the year before, so this was a brand new airplane. I sat mid-cabin across from the galley. My first major memory was that it was far from whisper, quiet. Engine, engine noise was not there, but the wind noise was even louder. I was later told the degree of soundproofing insulation was an airline option. I was over 18 in those days. You could drink alcoholic beverages in New York at 18, so I was interested in the galley liquor display. Unlike today, when everyone gets a small bottle, about eight full-sized bottles were mounted vertically on the bulkhead with a dispenser at the top or a correction at the bottom. If someone bought a drink, the stewardess, yes, that is what they were called back then, the stewardess put a glass under the spout and the correct amount was dispensed, both because it was expensive for us Plus, it was a mid-afternoon flight. We passed on buying drinks on the plane. For all of our flights, leaving JFK, arriving and departing Hartford, and arriving Newark, access to the plane was outside using steps, not the jetway that became the standard way of boarding much years later. And one one other change, the back cover of the ticket package reminded you that if you were on a round-trip ticket and stayed overnight, you needed to reconfirm 
your return reservation. Now, let's talk about the Ionosphere Lounge or the Ionosphere Club. When they started, airline clubs were the exclusive facilities that only the most valued customer of an airline could visit. In the 1970s, airlines were forced by Congress to open their clubs to any passenger who would pay a membership fee. And for me, that was a golden ticket. For $25 for a year, I signed up for a membership at Newark Airport. A few months later, they sent me an invitation to upgrade to a five-year membership, which I also gladly did. Then a few months later, they had an effective marketing department. I was given the opportunity to become a lifetime member for me and eventually my wife. The total cost was just about $500, and this has given me club access through all of Eastern's existence then Continental, Continental's President's Club, with only a minor requirement of flights to affect the transfer. And now we are lifetime members of the United Club. When I did sign up for the lifetime membership, they sent me a wood wall plaque attesting to my membership. It is still on my wall, my basement wall, but still my wall. I got a good deal on this, and so did Eastern, because as I travel on business, having the advantage of the Ionosphere Club did get me to book as much travel on Eastern as I could. As a member of the Ionosphere Club, I was also invited to open an account in the Eastern Airlines Credit Union. While I had no real need for another bank account, the checks on that account were pictures of Eastern airplanes. So how could I say no? And while I visited only once, I found that the local branch office for making deposits and withdrawals was in Eastern flight operations. In those days of little security, just showing my Eastern Credit Union membership card got me in the door of flight operations. Now, here are a few flight memories. When I was in the computer business, I did a lot of business travel by air. And although I eventually did have multi-year memberships in the United Red Carpet Club and the Delta Crown Room, my favorite was Eastern and the Ionosphere Club. I was never able to convince my employer to, employer to pay for the memberships, but I found them invaluable. Whenever there was a flight delay or cancellation, the line at the counter had 100 people. The club may have had two or three in the line. Plus, in those days, flight changes and sometimes upgrades were at the discretion of the agent, and the club agents were very generous, especially to we frequent travelers. If you flew south with Eastern and Delta, for that matter, Odds are very high you were going through Atlanta. Eastern had a great presence there. They occupied Concourse C fully and split the gates of Concourse B with Delta. And both concourses had ionosphere clubs. And if you were making a connection, as you often were, they had a great cheat corridor, as it was called, 
There was a passageway built under the tarmac of the gates with a moving walkway between the two eastern concourses so you could easily go from one concourse to the next if that was needed for your connection. From what I can find on the web, the passageway still exists, but it is closed off since there is no more need for it. And here's something to say about airline food. What is there to say about it? But two things I can relate about Eastern. They had what I call their apple snack, a plastic tray with an apple, two wrapped pieces of cheese, and some crackers, all in a shrink-wrapped package, the flight attendants. Times and jobs designation change from the 60s, from stewardesses to flight attendants. They could easily distribute to the 100 to 150 passengers even on an hour-long flight. And it was a perfect snack for an afternoon flight. The regular meals were okay, nothing great, nothing terrible. But Eastern had probably the best selection of special meals you could order in advance. I took advantage of that often, and it gave me a meal of which my seatmates often would be envious. Eastern's frequent flyer program, One Pass, gave each member a book of tickets about the size of small checks. When you turned in your ticket, all flights used paper tickets back then, you also turned in this One Pass form, which had your information already printed on it, and you just wrote in the date and flight number, and it worked very well. Although I traveled a lot and therefore got my share of first-class upgrades, I never had a position where I was authorized to fly first-class on a first-class ticket. But Eastern had a Y one pass fare, which, if the ticket was written as full Y fare, you could book confirmed space in the first-class cabin. A great marketing way around a customer uh, who needed to fly Y but would love to sit in F. And during the times of saving every dime, Eastern did a power back at the Atlanta airport gates with the 727 and DC-9 aircraft to avoid needing the tug. My memory of that, and I knew what I was coming, that this was coming, so I was never concerned, is the aircraft moved forward a foot or so towards the terminal before starting to back up. Now here at the end of this story, I relate some sadness. Eastern declared bankruptcy in New York, where Eastern management felt they would have a better chance. It was a Miami company, but due to the rules of bankruptcy, the first Eastern entity to declare was the Ionosphere Clubs Incorporated, which was a New York corporation. Then Eastern Airlines could join its sister company in the bankruptcy filing, and it would be adjudicated in New York, which management thought might be friendlier than if they declared bankruptcy in Florida. 
History shows how that worked out. But my, my greatest sorrow was going through the Atlanta airport after Eastern finally ceased all operations. The tram that goes between the concourses just bypassed the dark and eastern only concourse C and the eastern delta concourse B was partially blocked. I also walked between concourses. Atlanta has a moving walkway and it was upsetting to walk past the C entrance with all lights off and the B entrance partially closed off a sad memory of Eastern's demise. But I am glad that I have so many more good and vibrant memories of Eastern. And that spirit of the wings of man still lives on in me. For our last reading tonight, uh, this is... On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women, keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories, if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, eneilholland at yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114, and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you will be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com 
forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.